Well, there's an interesting thought. That just presence has a natural form of acceptance to it. That, that you would assume that a tree would be accepting in its lack of response. Whereas yeah. for a human, do you ever really have a lack of response? You know, whether it be body language or anything, there's so much that's communicated. Wow, that's very Taoist. to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byron. We have breaking news from Barefoot to Emmaus Studios. <laughs> Seems that there are some plants growing on the inside. We have nature breaking in through our walls. Tell us, Byron, what's going on here? Well, sitting to uh, your right, my left, are two of my bonsai trees. Mm -hmm. um, Beautiful specimens. Yeah, one of them is a redwood, which is... From the Redwood Forest! <laughs> um, which is kind of a wild plant to have as a bonsai. Yeah. It's one of the biggest trees in the entire world, or tree species. And the point of bonsai is to keep them small, so... Well, you're... Seems like you gotta do a little bit of work. That oh, guy's I have up. so much work. It's, uh, <laughs> it's about a foot and a half tall. Yeah, it's <clears> approaching <throat> two feet there. Depending on the species, there are categories of bonsai, and this one is... <sighs> yeah... Hard, hard to encapsulate what I'm going for here. It's it's a little unruly. Uh, the other one here is a cypress tree, mm. um, about the size of your fists together, yeah, or like about. one one hand kind of splayed out. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's what we'll be talking about today. Mm. I've been doing this discipline of bonsai for about a year, a little over a year. I started. Uh, during lockdown. When last... did you want to start? I've wanted to start bonsai for a long time. So I, in many of my travels, I lived in Guam for a while and I studied Japanese language and culture for five, six years in middle school and high school. And I've just always loved how bonsai look. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I've tried getting, I think I may have tried grafting plants a little bit a couple years ago i tried doing a little bit with some seedlings and things but those didn't work out super well no it was no. a rough draft ha you're funny so yeah i think i now have 14 trees uh and probably about six... your own little soccer team <laughs> yes although i only have six or seven that i think are like good good players currently yeah they can be drafted. Well, it's a mix. So uh, there's just so much about bonsai. I, I want to be, I want to be clear that most of what we're talking about in Barefoot Tumes is theological stuff. Um, oh, interesting. <laughs> go figure. Just in case you didn't know. Um, Surprise. And so, I'm not just here to to ramble about my own private hobby, but to dig into some of the theological implica implications and ramifications. I mean, I think some people would be interested in just hearing you ramble about bonsai, but... Yeah, I could do that for a little while, maybe. <laughs> yes, we are here to go in a little deeper, but I think having a picture to kind of frame the scene here would be helpful. So, uh, you have two here. Do they have names? Um, the Redwood does not. <gasps> although, um, I, I believe she's a she. Okay. Uh... <laughs> so I'm not the most political or whatever on Instagram, um, but I got an Instagram and I would say 80% of my, maybe 90% of my posts are about bonsai trees. Oh, bonsai updates, yeah. And I just needed, I just needed the queer to like leak out into them, <laughs> leak out somehow. So I started gendering my trees. Uh, I believe this one, uh, as long as you're not misgendering your trees, goes by they, them pronouns, uh -huh. but I need to remember cause I kind of stopped over the summer paying attention to my trees cause, or over the winter cause they go dormant. Ooh, there's an um, interesting theory. Does that have anything to do with their sexuality? <laughs> um, that kind of a sexual or gender fluidity 
that it goes dormant in a certain season. <laughs> it could be. They uh, cease to have gender. Is it abro abrosexual? Something and, like that, yeah. Um, that is one's, uh, the fluidity of one's gender or sexual orientation. Mm. Woohoo! <laughs> this tree is named Angel. Uh, mm. So named because their branches kind of splay out on either side like angel wings. Hmm. Um, and I... Is that what angel wings look like? Sure. <laughs> the seraphim. Um, and this tree, uh, again, maybe a little silly, but I, I, I wanted diversity in the representations of my trees. And so this one goes by they, them pronouns. Um, I uh, hmm. kind of dropped that that theme of playing with uh, gender and orientation of my trees somewhat early on because it's a little artificial. I do feel some some weird something weird when like uh, people try to gender even their dogs and stuff, and it's like it's a like yeah, gender is a social construct yeah. that is valuable for us as human beings yes. in the way that we engage with each other and how we engage with ourselves. But yeah. that's not necessarily how a tree would think about it. Sure. Like engage relationally. Like so to sex a tree in terms of identifying its its uh, biological sex, male, female, or so many trees are, are hermaphroditic. Yeah, usually. Um so anyway, that was just a fun zone of me playing around with bonsai. But before we move away from the gender aspect, sure. I'm wondering if there's some aspect of yourself that you project onto the trees in their various gender identities that you give them. So for example, the a, a tree that you use she, her pronouns for may be part of your feminine side. You project into the way that you engage with that tree. Likewise for a they, them tree, some aspect of your queerness in gender, in the, the giant package of who you are, sure. you project that onto that tree and that in some ways might be you know, subconsciously processing part of who you are with that tree. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I don't think I'd thought about that uh, explicitly or externally, but I, I see no reason why not. Um, honestly, part of the reason is that I just happened to be... Started the, part of the reason I started messing with gender and trees and stuff was uh, because I was wearing nail polish mm -hmm. over the summer and have been wearing nail polish on and off just this year, partly to break the habit of biting my nails. Um, cause it's gross. Cause biting my nails is gross. Well, I, I meant the nail polish is gross. <laughs> oh, the nail, yeah. both. It's, <laughs> um, and so then I was just posting these pictures and so then it was just this nail polished guy's hand. And so I couldn't resist nice. adding, yeah, aspects of my own gender and, and sexuality ideas. You ever okay. think about any non-toxic paint? Just put it on the tips of the little ferns or little branches. <laughs> give them a little nail polish. Uh, I had not considered that. Also, I didn't decorate any of them for Christmas or anything. Hmm. So, interesting stuff. Instead uh, of decking the halls, you got decked. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, let me say a couple more things about the styles or the diversity of bonsai that I have. So, uh, I've, I bought four or so of them, five of them maybe from a store, um, four of them specifically from like a bonsai, from the bonsai section of a tree nursery or something. Uh, but the rest of them I have, I've tried to do so many cuttings and seedlings to, or so you'd like can cut off a branch of a newly growing shoot and mm -hmm. stick it in the ground and try to get it to root. And I've had an abysmal success rate of trying to mm -hmm. get plants to root. Um, but otherwise getting seedlings, so getting very small. Actually, I just got three new maples, so that pushes it up to 17 bonsai. Um, but who knows if they'll survive or be successful. And so new shoot rising up in Hebrew is Nazareth, right? Uh, particularly a new shoot from a root base, I think. So like a new shoot from an old tree is a Nazareth. Yeah, which is where we get the town of Nazareth from. Yeah, the root of Jesse. Mm-hmm. Or rod of Jesse, as the descendant of uh, Jesus, or David, the descendant of Jesse. In other words, Jesus was a fan of bonsai. There we go. That's how it's theological. <laughs> Case, closed. <laughs> Case closed. Thanks for coming okay. to our podcast. <laughs> Take Good care. Night. May you find wonder in the. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh,
Um, okay, so, Byron. So I've got, so yeah, uh, I've got two that were intentionally supposed to be bonsai. Uh, they are dwarf species. Uh, they're already pretty old, nicely shaped, but the rest of them, I've had to prune them. I've had to twist them into shape using wire, all sorts of things. And then uh, technically, I guess the other half of bonsai, uh, the, the Chinese characters for them mean potted plant. So yeah. the pot is half of the art of the bonsai. It's a whole lot less involved because, I mean, you get to choose the pot, but you don't change the pot necessarily. You repot a plant maybe every five years or so. But um, some of my trees are in these nice glazed Japanese pots and others are in plastic containers and still others are in these random kind of terracotta clay pots. Or the old beer can you got cut in half. <laughs> or the old beer can. I do have a, um, a red cedar and a jade tree trying Ooh. to root in, in an old beer can. Beer can. So anyway, that's just to give you a little bit of a, of a thought of uh, what I do and what bonsai, how I've been interacting with bonsai. But there's obviously yeah. some fun theoretical, uh, theological Well, Byron, you mentioned uh, twisting them or bending them into shape. Mm. And that seems interesting to me because obviously it will have a shape regardless of what you do to it. So how do you see that being part of, I don't know, caring for the tree? Yeah. This is actually the biggest kind of philosophical, theological takeaway that I've had from bonsai altogether. There's so many ways, you know, appreciation of nature um, and, and some other aspects uh, that bonsai have inspired me with, but this one particularly, this idea of what is my role as the artist compared to the nature of the tree itself. Mm. So the goal of bonsai, is, it was initially um, as a, you could call it a form of like photography almost, hmm. right, to set a scene, uh, kind of like painting. So you can, you can paint a tree or you can have a tree in your house uh, or in your garden or something. But if you want it really close next to you, kind of like a selfie or something, right? Um, it has to be portable or transportable. And so what Chinese artists did like a thousand years ago or more is they started making miniature version versions of trees inside. So the point is to make, is to make a little tree that looks like a big tree. Like if you were an inch tall, you could look at up you could look up at that tree and be like wow this looks like a big tree and the issue is that small trees baby trees infant seedling trees don't look like big trees yeah like they look thin and spindly and uh, just their proportions are totally different but bonsai you keep the roots restricted you uh, you hypothetically you, you shouldn't have to stress out the tree to keep it small although that is one technique of doing it but you doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> uh, well, see, here's kind of one of the things: trees are just wild. Certain trees left by themselves will just kill themselves with age. Oh. Just structurally, if you ever, you know, if you're if you're driving around and you see a big, big tree kind of held together with, uh, like, not zip ties, like like big straps to keep the branches from falling sideways or. Um, you know, in a normal forest, a really big tree, it's hundreds and hundreds of years old. It um, has a huge capacity as it ages to get damaged. And then mm. damage can very easily in an old tree become rot. Uh, and then the tree can die from the inside out. So trees are not great at taking care of themselves. Well, maybe that's part of a bigger collective thing that they're, they're meant to die so that they're tree bodies will fall to the forest floor and rot and become good soil for little bugs and moss and things and to, you know, continue the ecosystem. Yes, I mean, that's, that's an excellent idea that death itself is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, well, here's the thing that, in, in, at least in the Pacific Northwest, but in most places of the world, we have cut down most old trees. True. Yeah. So we don't even know what, you know, most... Given how old certain trees can get or should be able to get, most people in North America, at least, haven't seen a tree older than the equivalent of, like, 
a teenager or a middle-aged tree, hmm. right? Like certain forests or single like matriarch trees in an old growth forest should be hundreds and hundreds of years old. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, trees, trees are highly diverse in that way, but even, and maybe this is different because it's a cultivated uh, species or cultivated variety, but fruit trees need to be pruned in order for them to produce good fruit. So in yeah. nature, the point is seeds. But but if we are looking for fruit, and that's already some level of intentionality or cultivation. Um, Isn't it just because we humans are sugar fiends and we demand that our fruit has a very high rate of sugar? And so it's all gene... Um, you know, selective population. Selective breeding? Yeah. Yeah, you make it sound very artificial. Um, well, it is an intentional process of choosing the seeds that are going to have the, the most sugary and tasty fruit. I mean, I don't think it has or to be... Or the widest crop yield, or... You know, there is there is an intentional part of the... Yes, yeah. Selective. You're not going into a lab and, like, editing the sure. genome, but, you know, well, there is a selective... We could be now! Some of that is happening, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's that level of intentionality already. But you could also, so you could select for any characteristic, you know. But naturally, these trees would have fruit and would be fine. It's just not fruit that we would want to eat. Sure. Sure. I mean, animals yeah, they have eat, been they eating fruit for... Berries and... Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, essentially it's this question of, does the tree, do we let the tree do what it wants to do, or do we cultivate it? What do we do? We drown. So intentionality versus authenticity is a way to talk about that relationally. Mm. Um, I see where this is going. Well, you could, and, you know, we could let it go, we could let it go naturally, <laughs> or I could drive the conversation mm -hmm. in an intentional way. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so... So the, the point partially is to, you know, you wrap a wire around a branch and hold it there for two or three years while that branch gets set with the lignin and it becomes a mature branch, and then you can take the wire off. Um, is it going to go back like my braces, my teeth? <laughs> <laughs> Did your teeth go back? A little bit, yeah. That's fascinating. Not um, majorly. No, if, if done correctly, um, it, a branch should set in, in that place. And so here's the thing. My little redwood here... The, the branches are all like kind of going up yeah. because as a young tree, it's looking for light. Yeah. It's, it's designed at this age to look for light. It's but looking I'm taking... for the source. Oh, there we go. It's praising. Creator. Yeah. But I'm taking care of it, right? So it doesn't need to like operate out of desperation in this way of like, I need to, I need to reach up. I need to get tall, right? I'm, I'm giving it everything it needs. Mm. And so... I can't, so, so if that tree were, you know, uh, 120 feet tall, the weight of the branches would eventually bring the branches kind of down yeah. at a Christmas tree-like angle. You know, you think of them as... Oh, Christmas tree, oh, oh Christmas tree. Um, so, one thing that I can do is intentionally set those. Now, is that harming the tree? Is it, does it harm the tree to prune it? I don't know. Or does it hurt the tree to prune it? Or does it harm the tree to prune it? So that's another psychological kind of takeaway. Um, but I guess, yeah, to the main point of intentionality versus... Do you have thoughts about... Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about that aspect of hurting a tree. Because you know with fruit that the fruit is meant to fall. It literally does fall when it gets too ripe. Mm -hmm. And so picking that fruit off of the tree even as it is still connected to that tree, is not harming the tree. The fruit was designed to fall. Yeah. Leaves, depending on the kind of tree, deciduous uh -huh. or coniferous, you know, like, are designed to fall. And so there are aspects of a tree where I would say removing this is not harmful because it's, it's part of its design of how it's meant to do what it do. Uh, but branches will still fall on occasion, but I don't think that's necessarily quite as much the intention, but you brought up a good point about a tree's health and that, and some of the things that I've picked up for you, you and your brother, Chris, over the years, um, 
that the amount of branches can actually limit the tree's effectiveness, whether, you know, in fruit yield, mm -hmm. um, or otherwise, especially if they're growing downward and against each other. Mm -hmm. So... Or they shade each other out or something. Yeah, so, so there can be aspects where it is limiting itself or causing, I don't know if harm is necessarily what, you know, but like there's some limitation to its own growth. Because a tree's not conscious, it can't make those decisions. Yeah, it's not saying I'm going to put my branch here. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating question because I think, you know, as you engage in bonsai and as all of us engage in this broader world, I would hope that we would be cultivating uh, respect and admiration for the natural world that we would seek to love and care and tend for it well, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so if we are to make adjustments like removing a branch, it should be done with an intentionality of having respect for that tree and not just thinking, oh, I want to remove this branch, but yeah. no, I want to love this tree and this is part of what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of a couple different schools of thought around bonsai. The Chinese style is to prune it into place, just cut off the branches that you don't want to be in that place and just hope a new branch grows where you want it to go. Hmm. Uh, the Japanese style is to to kind of bend the branches that are there into space, into the right place or the right orientation or whatever. You can look at a tree and say, this is the shape that I want it to have. You can look at it and say, you can say, well, I'm going to force it to be this shape. Or you can look at the tree and have it tell you what it wants to be. But it still takes some pruning. Yes. Uh, well... Yeah. That's interesting. Pruning or bending or sure, sure, or sure. But if the tree is telling you what it wants to be, but as in, like, you know, if it has, you know, a huge branch growing this direction, go. You're not going to force that to go a different way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, if the branch is three years old or so, then you can't bend it. Yeah. So you have to listen to the tree. Or can't just bend it like Beckham. Can't bend it like Beckham. Another aspect there, though, is that, and maybe there's theological implications here too, that you need to plan three, five, ten. 15 years ahead of time hmm. for what this tree is going to look like for the truly like so so there are some some trees out there from japanese masters that are 400 600 years old wow and you know so they've been passed on from generation to generation and so you know your grandpa has to communicate to you what he's been working towards from his grandfather <laughs> that didn't happen in studio ghibli with miyazaki <laughs> hayao also, miyazaki his son, Goro Miyazaki, started to take the studio in a very different direction with mm. some stronger CGI, and oh. a lot of people hated it. Oh, <laughs> so, good thing they weren't in Bonsai, because... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another huge aspect... Uh, have we talked about Kintsugi before, the gold cracks? Yes, yeah, we've talked about that. So... so just in case you're not, you didn't listen to that one other episode or you're not familiar with the concept, there's this Japanese art where you can fill in the cracks of a broken piece of pottery with gold, essentially, uh, to, make the, to actually highlight the cracks, not as a flaw or not as something that detracts from its beauty, but actually enhances its beauty. So it is more beautiful for having been broken. But philosophically, you don't just break something no. so as to repair it. That goes against the Some whole... Some people do, but it's not uh, what you're supposed to do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, holistically thinking about that philosophy and even tying this to, you know, notions of like the fall Sin, yeah. for humanity. Um, exactly. There is some aspect of the pre-fall condition if we want to, you know, talk about the Garden of Eden um, mm. as it might have been whole, being immature in oh, some ways sure. and, and limited, mm. that there is additional beauty that has been created through the process of restoration and reconciliation mm. Mm. that couldn't yeah. have existed before because there is nothing to repair. Yes, you know, what is it? You break the white light and then you get the rainbow, the fractals. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to jump in and actually correct a, a typical misunderstanding about kintsugi. You're not you're not using gold, like liquid gold or something, Aww. molten gold, to like <laughs> fill the cracks and solidify it together. You're actually using a, um, a couple different 
special types of glue and lacquer. And then when the lacquer is still tacky, you put gold powder in mm-hmm. and on top of it. And you, you actually paint the, the lacquer on. So it's not the gold holding it together. Because it would be pretty malleable. Because, it, yeah, it, it wouldn't be structurally. <laughs> anyway, people just kind of misrepresent it or mis, misunderstand it sometimes. Uh, that you're not fixing it with gold. It, it is real gold that is then highlighting the cracks. But anyway, mm. small, small, yeah. just correction. Uh, so similarly, though, with bonsai, you know, we were talking about old trees that get broken or, or bent or something in nature by a storm. And that then becomes part of that story, part of that scene. This is my story. <laughs> this is my song. my savior all the day long. So then, so a broken branch or a piece of dead wood or a... A bruised reed. <laughs> sure, whatever it is, becomes part of the history of the tree. And actually, then this testament to the strength and resilience of the tree. Look at what I've gone through. Hmm and triumphed over so so there are certain species of trees particularly their deadwood just looks gorgeous yeah junipers are, are great at this um there's a there's a whole technique called tanuki which is like a the trickster raccoon spirit yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. um there in bonsai there's something called tanuki where you you find a piece of wood that is dead and then you graft a tree in or onto that Ooh. piece of wood down to the soil base so that it looks like a huge part of that tree is dead. So it, th- this idea of dead wood is so desirable, actually, hmm. that people fake it sometimes. You fake it till you make it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just, just the implications of, of what that means for our concept of beauty, right? This mm. isn't, this you know, you as a person are not broken because of sin or a mistake or whatever that through the redemption of that thing, through the healing of that thing, now people are very careful, you know, with the deadwood and stuff, that you that you don't just leave it, leave the tree open for infection or rot to get in there. You, yeah. Again, you take care of the tree in the same way that I think Jesus has taken care of sin. Yeah. And we are left, as James says, to, to rejoice in tribulation. There are a lot of words you could use to describe that deadwood. One of them is dead. You know, you could hmm. say broken. You could say, um, what would be another good thing to say for it? Like without life or um, at its end point. You know, it is vanity. It is it is empty and meaningless. No longer growing. In the condition. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ceased to be dynamic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think all of those are potential metaphors for understanding our condition. Hmm. You know, I don't think we should limit it and say that we're not broken because there are certainly imperfections to mm, us. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I wouldn't want people to feel afraid to use language like that. Yeah. However, typically the rhetoric becomes one of shame of saying, it's, it's a very self-focused thing of like, you are broken. Yeah. As opposed to, recognizing the brokenness in your condition not having the final word and that you are actually part of something that is more beautiful because of Mm. that healing process Mm. because of that new growth that you get a little bonsai coming out of (laughs) you that can incorporate the dynamism of your broken self to make something additionally beautiful and new yeah that makes me think of, uh, we have a mutual friend who was doing a lot of work with their gender and... Um, Nine to five? <laughs> uh, women are not particularly... How do I put this? No. Um, trans women can be insecure if they are particularly tall. Sure. Um, and... Uh, you and I have a friend who was very insecure about their height. And it was, in terms of the, the gender dynamics of being, therefore, like then a tall uh, female presenting person. And the, the result 
most people, myself included initially in some of this conversation when they brought it up was to like shame the shame or like not, Mm. not, if not to shame the shame, then to like identify whatever they were talking about, you know, their insecurity as something to get over or to not be worried about. But, you know, um, they've talked to me particularly about how impactful it was for them to be able to identify uh, that insecurity and be able to fully live into it in order to understand what it was and then be able to navigate it and then maybe be able to heal from it. but Or rather grow through it. Sure, sure. You know, if it's this deadwood, rather than ignoring it and trying to move around and finding no space outside of that yeah, yeah. and constantly trying to grow something new in the shadow of that giant dead tree, you know, to come to terms with it, to reckon and re- and acknowledge its full reality and then to be able to see it as a place through which new life can grow. Yeah. Byron, one of the things that I have most appreciated hearing you talk about your bonsai craft is the way that you notice like every tree <laughs> your oh eye when we're on when we're walking or if we're in the car you will often be like oh my gosh and point out some beautiful <laughs> tree and there's some aspect of this tree that i don't see but you see huh. and that really struck me because what that communicated to me is that there is so much more wisdom and truth and spiritual connection that is already present and around us in things like nature in Mm. things that are already accessible to us that i haven't tuned my eyes to and that as we enter in as you have entered into tending to trees you have gained access to that you have a new vantage point a new window through which to see the beauty that is already present around you And that's something that I found really profound because I think we can extend that to anything. Hmm, That any truth, any practice we have, you're a musician, you're an athlete, you're an artist, you're a mathematician, you're, you know, there's no limit to the ways that we can find our creator present in the beauty of all that is. Hmm. And to find spiritual truths and wisdom and life in all of those things. So... For me, that's that's the one main thing that I've taken away from your practice. Yeah. I mean, the exact same thing happened when I was taking a uh, theater sound design class, and I had an assignment to every day come up with, it, to describe with words a sound that I had heard. Oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I say weird in the best of ways. Yeah. I, that would be kind of challenging. But exactly. Um, that was a squish sound. <laughs> I, I, it, was, it was something like that and it made me pay attention to all sound in a really different way so yeah similarly what would you say about that um, refrigerator groan refrigerator groan see groan is a good word for it I would have used a more mechanical word uh-huh. like buzz okay or, yeah. yeah anyway I'm just curious <laughs> what would I say about it to yeah just... I mean you know if you're doing the assignment right now yeah, I mean, I would I would describe how it, how it, uh, like how big it sounds in the space. How, how much it fills up the space. Yeah, as opposed to in in contrast with another sound, like if it was raining clock. outside, or yeah, the clock, or your own voice, or something. So these are things that like you don't necessarily notice until you focus on them. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. No, background noise or white noise is certainly like that. In many ways, it is designed to be forgotten. Or like a bad smell. We walked into a, a friend's house the other day, and uh, she just had yeah. a, a weird, a weird like oil diffuser going on. There's something. It smelled weird, but I didn't notice it after about 45 minutes or less. I don't think it even took me 45 minutes. I remember I had a friend once uh, who... My dad was picking me up from this place, and he comments to me afterward how my friend had such a strong perfume. And I was like, perfume? What perfume? <laughs> and he's mm. like, he, he almost got offended. He's like, how could you not how smell that? How could you not? And I was just like, 
I wasn't paying attention to it. Yeah. You know, whether it was something that I was already used to from prior exposure with her mm. or just being there at that party or, or whatever, it was completely out of my awareness to where I was no longer even conscious of it. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I went off to Kenya recently. Now we're on a big tangent about ignoring smells, but <laughs> I went off to Kenya recently and I came back and I could smell the Pacific Northwest. Mm. Oh, that smell when you come home yeah. for the first time in a long time. I don't care where you live, your, your home has a smell and yes. you probably know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you were to smell that like in the middle of some other place, you'd be like, whoa. Um, uh, Wow, we're really deep into this smells thing. I so smell I, theory. And, but I mean, this maybe could get back to Japanese-related things. Um, Japanese um, smell theory. <laughs> <laughs> I dated a woman who was phenomenally good at kendo, and her father was a was a sensei, and she was just incredible. She'd been doing it since she was very young, and kendo armor. And mm -hmm. like the kendo clothes smell disgusting <laughs> because you're just sitting in sweat for so long. They smell terrible. They smell like discipline. They smell like discipline and it takes discipline to smell them. But um, she, she told me a number of times, like if she was ever feeling stressed, even in a non kendo environment, like she would just take one of the like headbands or something and just like Aww. smell it and she would feel very comforted wow. at home um so anyway whether it's through trees or smells you can get very and i think smells is the is the opposite direction of what you were saying you know not noticing a thing after a while yeah as opposed to the intentionality of entering into a new discipline and therefore because of that noticing things right so the angle of a branch or if someone has pruned a tree uh, poorly yeah, I can now identify these things. Or I yeah. can tell you, like, oh, this tree wouldn't be good for bonsai, and here's why. Um, yeah, I'm always looking. It's a similar thing when we started going barefoot. I'm, I now look mm -hmm. down far more often, see where I'm going. It's given me more empathy for when I'm walking with older people mm. who are slower or people who, like, maybe walk with a cane. You know what it's like to have to slow down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or, be, or be intimately aware of terrain. And so much more appreciation, too. Mm. Here's the thing you don't think about, that the different surfaces that you walk on, people with shoes, those calcid people, they typically would think comfortable or not comfortable surface mm. when they look at me walking barefoot. Mm. Like, they look at rocks and they're like, uncomfortable. And they look at smooth pavement and they're like, comfortable. But within that whole spectrum... Yeah. There's so much difference. You feel heat, you feel oh texture, yeah. you feel moisture, you feel, I mean, pain is something, but even when I walk on rocks now, for the most part, I've actually repurposed that sensation from the pain receptacles of my brain <laughs> to just a different aspect of the experience. Hmm. And that doesn't mean I can just like sprint across sharp rocks. But it does mean that when I'm walking on it, I'm not thinking, ouch, ouch, ouch. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, this is a different experience. This is, you know, <laughs> there's this sense of it being in a different place in my mind. Yeah, yeah. But awareness. Hmm. And there's so much truth that we cannot know. Same friend that you were talking about earlier whose house had an interesting smell. One of the things that she said was this reflection of like how much do we know oh, jesus right and make with this what you will but the response that she had was one percent and i would say that one percent is sort of representative for almost nothing rather yeah. than it being one one hundredth of all of who jesus is yeah but this essence of the amount that we know and i don't care if you're a theologian i don't care if you've been a pastor your whole life i don't care if you've been a christian your whole life or a spiritual person your whole life that amount is still so marginal mm -hmm. to all of what is and that's wild yeah what are, what are we missing out on there was a <clears throat> sermon i heard from the inn the youth group college youth group we both attended a while ago uh someone was talking about driving home during uh, like during the night on New Year's Day, New Year's mm. Eve, whatever. 
and seeing all these fireworks go off you know, just left and right while driving through downtown at midnight and um she just had this inspiration of like man what would it be like this is what it would be like to see god's answers to prayer or god's miracles like if we could see spiritually like Whoa. just god's action in the world going off like fireworks around us if we had the eyes to see it hmm. and it was just such a beautiful image that's oh that's really interesting it makes me wonder when we don't see what's impacting us from not seeing because presumably sure. if you're praying about something the response is going to have something to do with that <laughs> you know something where <laughs> you you should be able to observe it if it's directly part of it you know the way that i think about creator working in our world is less i just typically have a less anthropomorphic view mm -hmm. so i don't look at it as quite as much of an agent mm -hmm. as a you know a person who's like doing this doing this doing this but more of like flow like flow of energy flow of water there's a sense of things engaging systems that are in place interlocking you know uh gears mm -hmm. that are spinning and, and churning and mm -hmm. everything being connected that every breath that we breathe is in some sense the active presence of our creator filling our lungs with life mm -hmm. um and that's not to say that miracles don't exist. I do believe in miracles. And I think that's one of those tenuous areas where, again, we, you know, we see so many prayers not answered. Sure. And then we see things that we didn't pray for answered and prayers that are answered, but not in a way that feels random. Like there are things that have happened to me where I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we already talked about miracles on another episode, but um, it's, it's, again, to that idea of the 1% that we would know. There's, there's so much not understanding mm -hmm. that I have mm -hmm. as far as being able to hold these weird things in tension of all of what I can perceive that is incredible and powerful and palpable and all of what feels to be this total emptiness mm. and lack of response and lack of engagement from yeah. creator. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like, and we're kind of ping-ponging a little bit totally. here, but we didn't really dive in too deep into the intentionality versus authenticity thing. Uh, I guess not. So I feel like we, we have more to unpack there sure. if I want to. I guess I can go. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is something my sister and I have talked a lot about. And similar to where you and I have these mutually compatible values of oneness and diversity. Mm -hmm. But because of the precedent that I put for oneness and you put for diversity, it can lead us to starkly different conclusions on certain key theological things. Yeah. Similarly with my sister, Hania, she has this strong desire for authenticity, which I resonate with. I'm not anti-authenticity, <laughs> but in particular, when it comes to conflict, I do have a deference to intentionality and i think the reason why i do so is because of a lack of trust for all of the harm that can be caused it's more of a conservative stance i guess i would say of um having caution for what is not thoughtful sure in a, in a conflict now ideally in any amiable situation you're not having to be intentional. You're not having to think about everything that's going yeah. on. And by intentional, you know, you mean issues like using eye language of like, I heard from you this or... Yeah, and then checking in with yourself of recognizing where is this coming from within me. Yeah. You know, it is a, about listening to oneself, listening to the other person, seeking to have... Um, to be on the same side in an argument. That it's not you against me, but you and me on the same team having a challenge. Now, that's a little bit different than what you're talking about, but in a similar way, I think that someone can spiritually feel more inclined to a value of authenticity yeah. or um, naturalism, like letting things mm -hmm. be as they are yeah. versus an intentionality. That's maybe where we're talking like spiritual disciplines. That's where we're mm -hmm. talking this mm -hmm. kind of like cultivation of your faith, of your spiritual walk. And... You 
have mentioned to me before, I don't know if we've said it yet, that bonsai art is this beautiful intersection of both. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That I feel like I'm working with the tree. So the, that I cannot be in complete control of what this tree should be in my mind. Um, you know, I, I guide it in some ways. I am intentional about bending this branch or taking out that branch or putting it in this pot or, or whatever. And it can seem it can seem a little controlling maybe at, at the more intentional end. But it's also listening to I'm I'm cultivating the tree to do what it does best mm. as well. Which I think most reflects on you know, as opposed to just letting it grow wild. If I let a random tree just grow wild, if I don't do anything to it, it'll become a tree. <laughs> it won't be a bonsai. Yeah. Um or it'll be like a big tree. I mean, I could put it in a small pot, but then it would get root bound. It would die. So, you know, it, it could also die if I wrap the wire too tight or something. So intentionality itself needs to be mediated, moderated, which is, yeah, why I think bonsai uh, straddles that really nice middle line. I think the perfect image, though, is God's relationship to us. Hmm. I am to this tree <laughs> what God is to me. Yeah. That that I think God can take whatever we throw at them and work with it. You know, co-creation. I, co-creation, exactly, exactly, exactly. So I'm surprised by, you know, oh, there's a branch there. That's amazing. That's what I was hoping for. There's a branch right at the outer end of that elbow curve, and I can use this <laughs> to grow a new branch. And, you know, or there, in bonsai, there's this thing called a sacrificial branch. Which, ooh. yeah, ooh, it sounds very theological. It's mm-hmm. just it's just a branch that is low down on the tree to help thicken the trunk. It's not a branch with a savior complex? Nah. I mean, maybe, but the, <laughs> it's called sacrificial because you cut it off Uh-oh. eventually. Um, you sacrifice it. It's just there to help the trunk grow. Cut off from strong. the vine. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's all that theological like pruning yeah. metaphor from Ponsai as well. But yeah, the big, the big one is is this co-creative. Yeah. is So you mentioned a tree that is unengaged with, uncontrolled. Sure, yeah. As just authentic being, to itself. Yeah, authentic to itself is just a tree. Mm-hmm. The middle ground is bonsai. Is there anything that's fully intentional? I think still working with plants, I think mm-hmm. topiary. Topiary. Like, like... What is topiary? Watching, you know, those, like, British trimmed hedges... Uh-huh. Where it looks like an elephant. <laughs> they look like an elephant or they look like whatever. Like you're not listening to the tree at all. You're just using the tree as a medium to sculpt what you want. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess like pruning a fruit tree is on the far end of cultivation or intentionality. Topiary is maybe on the, on the really far end. Yeah. You know, this is entirely controlled. You happen to be using a plant to be doing this art. So it's more like objectification. You're not listening. You're not appreciating the plant for all of what it is you're looking at it in the same way that you would marmite the same way that you would play what is marmite like the maybe that's a swedish word it's like that's the veggie spread (laughs) marmite oh yeah wait hold on um madam there's there's some word for like the um mold plasticine clay the marble i think it's just marble (laughs) great yeah marble stone yeah like yeah like what the David okay. statue is made out of. Yeah, I think it has some name in Swedish or something or other. But yeah, so the way that you would treat any of those substances, you have to be aware a certain degree of how it works. Sure, absolutely. You know, if it's a rock, it's going to be pretty hard and you're going to need to use different tools. <laughs> yes. But it's not necessarily a care for that item as much as seeing it as a medium and looking, how can we dominate this medium? It's a very good point. How yeah. can we control it to do what we want? And you can make a mistake. With bonsai, you can't really make a mistake. It's kind of like Bob Ross painting happy trees. No happy, mis- no mistakes, just happy accidents. Or maybe like us. <gasps> yes. Are there any mistakes? You know, I think that we can do things and we can be sculpted in ways that are unhealthy, but I wouldn't call it a mistake. It's, again, you know, that idea of brokenness and the yeah. dead... Yeah. Uh, dead... Deadwood. Deadwood, yeah. Shoddy. Um, you call it shoddy? Uh, S-H-A-R-I. The shoddy Deadwood. <laughs> S-H-A-R-I. Shoddy. Shoddy. Okay. Shari. 
Is it too late now to say shoddy? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, sorry, let me get my braid back on track here. In the same way with Deadwood, do we look at this brokenness as mistake? Do we look at this as failure? All these negative words that we could throw at it. Or do we look at it as in some ways unhealthy in itself? That the tree needed to die. This aspect of us maybe needed to die. Our habits, our whatever, you know. Yeah. And to allow that thing to go its natural course of dying, or maybe even to take steps to let it die. You prune it, you cut it off. But we don't shame it. We'll let that part of the tree die, hopefully. I mean, I do have a tree. My second dug fir is dying right now. Oh, babe. It's just drying from the top, and I don't know what's wrong. And it makes me feel like a bad tree dad. Oh, <laughs> you're a good tree dad. Because I have two more dug firs, and I don't you're want them to die. Yeah. Um, but yeah, two of my dug firs. No, yeah, but pruning parts of us, the well, complex myriad. As well. and, and we do too. Yeah. And when you heal, you have scars. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that's always important to remember. Now, those scars can be a reminder of your past to shape you to not make those same choices again. They can be a testimony to other people who are currently in that experience. They can sure. be a point of strengthening. Like when you break bone, it's thicker, you know, and potentially stronger. Mm. Um, I'm not, what's the word? Anatomist? Osteologist. Osteologist. Um, but there are ways that our body can respond to mm. harm yeah. with actual growth. I mean, even thinking of neural pathways, like, mm. you know, you have some trauma or disruption in your neural pathways and incredibly miraculously, you can like make new pathways around that barrier, that, that harm yeah. that can often lead to new synapse connections that are actually beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, you talked a little bit in the beginning about some of the things that you've been reflecting on theologically from your trees. One of them that you mentioned was an appreciation of nature, and I would like to hear a little bit more of theologically what that's meant for you. I don't know if I have a, a ton of systematic thoughts on that, just, just vague musings of just an appreciation for the fact that God created things and that they were allowed to be beautiful right trees are some mm. of the first specific aspects of creation that are that are mentioned right you have types of plants types of animals types of things and then you have trees as this garden of beauty and provision so just being able to i mean whether whether it comes down to just having a plant in your room that like helps remind you remind me of uh kind of like you know walking walking barefoot is a reminder of the creation of the ground yeah. most tangibly but having we, we have a friend uh matt who has over 80 plants in their living space i just can't imagine how fresh the air is in there oh <laughs> it must be so delightful <laughs> but but yeah not not only just looking and appreciating the trees that I see along, along the road or along a path now, but appreciating nature in general. I don't know if it's much more than that. Yeah. Well, an appreciation for nature, I think comes back to, in essence, the first commandment or blessing, this idea of quote unquote dominion. Mm. Stewardship. You know, exactly. What is it? What does it really mean? Well, I would say harmony, recognizing our differences. So you don't treat a tree as a tree would treat a tree because we're not trees. <laughs> we, we treat them in the way that we are designed to engage, which is through our human capacities. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean we abuse them and look upon ourselves as superior, but we recognize that the way that I can engage with a tree is different than the way that the tree can engage with me and I can actually learn from how the tree engages with me. I can learn from how the tree engages with the other trees. Yeah. And part of that stewardship is an aspect of harmony. Looking at our differences, diversity, and saying, how can this make me the most whole person that I can be? Yeah, well, there's definitely a reciprocal relationship, right? They breathe in what we breathe out, and mm -hmm. vice versa. Yeah. Right? 
<laughs> he tried, I was thinking he tried the, um, if you're trying mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation with a tree. Breathe, Angel, breathe. Just, <laughs> hey, this is working for both of us here. <laughs> um, this is a pretty good relationship. It's a good relationship. Or, what are they? Oh, even, I mean, it just making me think, like, this, this house has aspects of wood in mm. it, right? The construction, where, where is nature in our lives there's a bromeliad sitting to my right some flowers over on that corner there's some oranges on the table just seeing where nature yeah. exists and how we interact with it how we benefit from it how we benefit it it's a lovely just kind of tangible reminder yeah wood is a little bit more tenuous i think because oftentimes that relationship can be exploitative i mean you mentioned earlier how all of the old growth so much of it has been destroyed. Yeah. Um, there are... All this clear cutting. I mean, the Amazon, I think I heard, and I don't know if this is accurate, so fact check this. So sad. But I heard that the Amazon, given the um, cattle ranches, everything that is environmentally degrading that is taking place within the Amazon, it actually has a carbon positive footprint, the Amazon that the lungs of the planet are not actually giving us oxygen. That could be false. I, what are you saying? So thinking about the methane, all the methane that is produced from all of the cattle ranches, sure. thinking yeah. about all of the clear-cut aspects of the Amazon and how much more limited the oxygen production of so the Amazon So we're making the Amazon smaller. We've made the Amazon f smaller and we filled it with a lot of things that are environmentally degrading. Yeah. To the extent, this is what I heard, and this is what would need to be fact-checked, to the extent that the Amazon as a whole, the whole area of, of what constituted the Amazon once, is now carbon positive. That the region as a whole? Yeah. Okay. Not the trees that are left. No, 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 yeah. But that the trees that are left don't now don't counteract. They don't, yeah, exactly. They don't overcompensate for... Damn. Yeah. Well, I know phytoplankton produce 50% of the oxygen we breathe. God bless our phytoplankton. Ugh. Well, and they're getting harmed by ocean acidification, among other things. Uh, <laughs> so, you want to stop breathing? <laughs> uh, but the Amazon, yeah, consists of a solid, solid chunk of, or maybe it used to, solid chunk yeah. of what our plant produced. There are positive ways to engage and use the resources of trees. And I'm not saying just waiting for a tree to fall down and then only using deadwood. Um, various indigenous communities have practices mm -hmm. of listening to the tree, asking for permission to use its bark, its other resources, and giving thanks for all of what they're taking yeah. in a holistic way that honors the entirety of the tree and then their interrelationship. And the force that the tree is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, there were there's indigenous practices where you can just take a plank from a living tree and then let it heal over and then take a plank from another tree or another one from that tree 10 years from now or whatever. Um, that's at least North American, uh, Pacific Northwest practices. Yeah. There's, I personally like to take the plank out of my own eye rather than from the tree, but there you go. You know, there, I've got tons of planks in my eyes. I mean, I can build a whole log build cabin. A whole house. <laughs> Um, there's actually, I mean, Japanese style, there's a wood providing method that just comes with pruning a tree correctly. Mm. It, you know, you can, you, you like have a base tree and then you cut off the top of it in a way that makes Nazareth, again, Naz yeah. Nazretim grow. Um, you with your Hebrew grammar. Mm, yeah. And then you cut those after a while and you, yeah it's like it's a sustainable it's one of the few sustainable wood practices that doesn't even kill the tree so yeah interesting things and we have so much to learn from it all so much brian thanks for sharing your expertise on bonsai this was far really fun. from it far from expertise one year there are people who go and get like full they, yeah, they become masters of this. But I more have, than me, and probably more than most people who are listening. That's a pretty small circle. So, <laughs> so you kind of rise, you rise in the ranks pretty quickly. But for me, yes, it has it has been delightful to have this form of discipline and this form of meditation and this form of closeness with another aspect of 
creation. Yeah. So, yeah. And even just thinking about mundane chaos and love, <laughs> I think the bonsai captures all three of those. Yeah, wow. You know, it, it just kind of does its thing, and you could find it boring. I mean, especially how slowly it grows, oh, right? Oh, it's so slow. You know, and then it's chaotic in the way that it'll grow on its own. But it's also something that actively loves us by allowing us to breathe, mm. you know? So on that note, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you you. Go in peace. <laughs>